Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you so much for listening to us today. How are you doing today, Sarah? Doing all right. Getting into the Christmas spirit. Yes, it's certainly getting to be that time of year. I'm pretty excited. Uh, I just, this past week, recorded... The first episode of a radio horror anthology show that I've written two episodes for, uh, which is pretty cool. Due to the temporal paradox of <laughs> recording podcasts, from my perspective, the show is recorded but has not yet aired. But from your perspective as a listener, the show aired two weeks ago. Yeah. But if you're curious, you can go to www.darksidedrive.com and look up my episode which is called Captain Courageous. It's the fifth episode of the season, I think. I wrote and directed it. But there are, of course, other episodes, a whole first season and four episodes of the second season. And you're free to check out those episodes once you have checked out my episode first, of course. (laughs) Ben has a cameo in his episode. Yeah, I get one line of dialogue. And I have some cameos throughout even the first season. Yeah, but it's pretty cool if you like comic books and... 1940s radio dramas, and uh, if you've ever heard the story of how the Superman radio show took down the Ku Klux Klan, uh, it's sort of all a fictionalized horror take on all of that. So if any of that sounds interesting, you should check it out. In the meantime, what are they checking out today? Well, today, Sarah, we are watching Murders in the Zoo. Murders in the Zoo, Morg? No, just Murders (laughs) in the Zoo from 1933. Cool. This film was produced by Paramount, right on the heels of Island of Lost Souls. And this film was actually already too far into production by the time some of the backlash Mm -hmm. to Island of Lost Souls hit. Mm -hmm. Um, They were sort of already stuck making this one. You think they would have abandoned it if they weren't so far along? Potentially, just because of the backlash Island of Lost Souls got. It's hard to say. We've been seeing over the last few movies a bit of a trend towards these horror films getting a bit more backlash from public and critics, doing less financially well in the United States, but doing financially better in the UK. Mm -hmm. That being said, Island of Lost Souls was straight up banned in the UK, so that sort of prevented that. Whereas Island of Lost Souls had been kind of a literary horror film, you know, based on a book, and therefore was kind of competing with the universal horror output. Murders in the Zoo tells a contemporary American story okay. and was thus designed to compete with the Warner Brothers horror output. Hence, the casting of Lionel Atwill in the lead. <laughs> so this makes our third Lionel Atwill movie in a row mm. and uh, the fourth overall, which ties Atwill with John Gatowit, Conrad Veidt, Anthony Carew, and Bella Lugosi for a number of appearances on the podcast. Okay. <laughs> that said, Paul Wigner currently maintains the lead for most number of movies on the podcast. Which is? Five. Does that include El Rauna? Yes. Okay. Yeah. All of these movies we've seen, Dr. X, Mystery of the Wax Museum, Vampire Bat, and this film were consecutive for Atwill. He was making them one after another. 
Mm. Um, but he would finally branch into non-horror roles after this due to the kind of boost in profile that he got from this run of four films in the horror genre. And fairly successful films, too. Generally speaking, yes. Um, Dr. X and Mystery of the Wax Museum did fairly well. Vampire Bat did fairly well for what it was, for sure. To direct this film, Paramount used uh, a contract director at the studio named A. Edward Sutherland. Sutherland had started his film career as a comic actor in 1916. Uh, before transitioning into becoming a director of comedies in 1925 with the help of his friend Charlie Chaplin. Murders in the Zoo was the first and only horror film that he ever directed. He was like, ah, that's enough. When's enough? (laughs) Perhaps it was felt that the lighter touch of a comedy director would prevent the film from being too gruesome or getting this kind of backlash that some of these other movies had been getting. The script certainly goes into some dark territories that must have made producers a little nervous. Hence the choice for the director. Yes. So uh, this film has two writers. We're familiar with one of them. It's uh, Philip Wiley, the sci-fi pulp author who co-wrote Island of Lost Souls. Okay. And if you want to learn more about Wiley, you can in our episode on Island of Lost Souls. The film's other writer... Seton Miller uh, typically worked for Warner Brothers, actually, on their gritty crime dramas. Oh. Uh, He had written or contributed to the screenplays for 1930's The Dawn Patrol and 1932's Scarface. And uh, later on in his career, he would work on G-Man, The Adventures of Robin Hood, the remake of Dawn Patrol, and even way later, Pete's Dragon for Disney. (laughs) Kind of an outlier there. Yeah. To shoot the film... Ernest Haller was chosen as cinematographer. Uh, Haller had been working as a cinematographer since 1920, but he was still fairly low on the totem pole at this point in his career, uh, though he had shot the aforementioned 1930 version of Dawn Patrol. However, after this movie, uh, Haller would go on to shoot much more major productions, such as Captain Blood, Jezebel, Dark Victory, Gone with the Wind... (laughs) for which he won an Oscar, Mildred Pierce, Rebel Without a Cause, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and the second Star Trek pilot, Where No Man Has Gone Before. So (laughs) quite a a distinguished career after this point, but at this point in his career, he's kind of just a working man, you know? Interesting. The biggest attempt of this movie to tone down the horror was the addition of actor Charlie Ruggles as comic relief. The then 47-year-old actor had been appearing in film since 1915, alternating between film and stage work. In the course of his long career, he would eventually be honored with three stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, one each for his work in film, radio, and television. The film's romantic lead is played by Randolph Scott. Scott was born in 1898, and he had served in World War I. He became interested in acting, and got his start when his wealthy textile engineer father introduced Scott to millionaire Howard Hughes. In 1932, Scott signed a seven-year contract with Paramount Pictures, being groomed as a leading man for Western B-movies based on the novels of Zane Grey. It was during this period that Scott appeared in Murders in the Zoo. 
Eventually, in 1935, Paramount would move him up to a picture status, although he would remain primarily in the Western genre through his career. He was kind of synonymous with the square-jawed Western hero. Scott lived with Cary Grant for 12 years, from 1932 to 1944, in what is widely considered to have been a romantic relationship, although both Scott and Grant's children from later marriages deny this. Scott would be married to heiress Marion DuPont for three years during the period that he lived with Cary Grant, (laughs) uh, and then would later marry actress Patricia Sullivan from 1944 to his death in 1987, during which time they adopted two children. Cool. Scott's romantic co-star in the film is Gail Patrick, an actress who was 22 years old at the time of making this film. She was a law school graduate with political aspirations who had entered the Island of Lost Souls Panther Woman contest (laughs) on a lark. Uh, And while she lost that contest to Kathleen Burke, she was still offered a contract by Paramount Pictures. Hmm. She negotiated it herself, winning a 50% salary increase over the standard starting wage, as as well as the removal of the clause requiring her to do cheesecake publicity stills, reasoning that there would be no way for her to resume her law career if there were these saucy pictures of her floating around. Fair. She appeared in 60 films from 1932 to 1948, typed as the haughty, malicious rival to the star romantic actress, uh, a persona that developed because her fear of the camera tended to come across as snobbery on screen. Oh, but she's the romantic lead here. Yes. One of Yes, one of them. In 1947, uh, after she quit acting, she married the head of the L.A. office of the J. Walter Thompson Advertising Agency. Her husband was also the literary agent of Earl Gardner, author of the Perry Mason novel series. As a former law student, Gail Patrick was a fan of the novels and so decided to develop Perry Mason as a television series. She would run the show for its nine seasons as executive producer, one of the only women EPs in television at the time. This lady is amazing. From 1960 to 1962, she would serve as vice president of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, which is best known as the body behind the Daytime Emmy Awards. She would be the only woman in a leadership role at that organization until 1983. She passed away in 1980 at age 69 of leukemia, having kept the illness secret while getting treated for it for four years. Mm. That's all really cool. Yeah, I thought you'd find her pretty cool. Yeah. Patricia's former contest rival Kathleen Burke, the panther woman from Island of Lost Souls, also appears in this movie in her second film role. Her romantic interest is played by John Davis Lodge, who was the son of a wealthy political family and had graduated from Harvard Law School in 1929. He began acting in 1933, Murders in the Zoo was his second film, and he would continue as an actor until 1942, before taking a break to serve in the military during World War II, and then after that he would serve as a congressman for Connecticut 
from 1947 to 1951, then governor of Connecticut from 1951 to 1955, then ambassador to Spain, 1955 to 1961, ambassador to Argentina, 1969 to 1973, and ambassador to Switzerland, 1983 to his death in 1985. Interesting. Yeah. So a whole bunch of people in this movie who have like solid other careers. Yeah, for each, sure. Like before and after coming to this film. Mm-hmm. That's really cool. Almost a menagerie of folks. <laughs> yeah. So this movie's obviously set in a zoo. It's murders in the zoo. Yeah. It won't really be clear until we've watched the movie and given the plot summary, but a lot of the eponymous murders in this zoo uh, depend upon some of the animals that are present in the zoo. And I thought it would be a good idea for our listeners to have an idea of just what zoos were like in 1933, because they're a little different than they are today, mm-hmm. as well as some real information on some of the animals used in the film to kind of serve as a bit of background for how the movie chooses to utilize them. Zoos have been around for a very long time. As many things, zoos started out as collections of animals owned by wealthy elites, whether that's like a royal family or anything like that, as kind of this exotic thing that they happen to own. Yeah, and that's sort of your traditional menagerie, is like a a collection of fancy pets. (laughs) Exactly, yeah. When we think of like old zoos, we automatically in our brain think of what people would have seen in the London Zoo Mm. in the UK. This typical look of these wrought iron bars, um, almost barren cages, these kind of fancy buildings, and a lot of taxonomic displays. And this we can kind of take as like one example of how zoos were kind of moving into scientific study uh, rather than like, look at all these fancy animals I have. Right. It wasn't until 1907 at the Tierpark Hagenbeck Zoo in Hamburg where these naturalistic landscapes would actually be brought into any kind of zoo for these animals. Mm. As far as the uh, North American history of zoos, the first North American zoo opened in 1847 in Halifax. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, It was called Downs Zoological Gardens. And this was actually opened as a research facility, more so than anything else, uh, but was open to the public because, you know, you can get that money. Yeah, for sure. In the States, this is actually kind of a something that people contest. So the first American zoo to get started, or planned, I should say, was uh, this zoo in Philadelphia. It had started to be planned in 1859, but was delayed for 15 years because of the American Civil War. Okay. So it actually opened to the public in 1890. However, 1860 is when the Central Park Zoo opened in New York. Right. So while the original motivation of a zoo was this collection of animals as this exotic thing to own, research is definitely a factor. People would have these educational exhibits as kind of a priority, just as much as zoos were to serve as public entertainment. Mm-hmm. Kind of an interesting example of this is the Dublin Zoo was founded by people in the medical profession. Uh, they wanted to study animals in life, but especially in death, because 
hey, what an easy way to get dead specimens of an animal you want to study. Mm-hmm. Kind of along this line of, like, let's educate people in displays for evolution, mostly, but also just displays of animals from different geographic regions. Black people were shown. Like, in the, as a display? As a display. Like, in the cages? In the cages, with the animals. Jesus Christ. Yep. Uh, that that's something I didn't know. So when was this happening? The last exhibit to have this uh, was a zoo in Brussels in 1958. Jesus. There's this really famous case in the Bronx Zoo in New York in 1906 when they opened up an exhibit that had this Congolese man named Ota Benga, in the display with monkeys, almost as a way of, like, showing, like, evolution and things like that, but obviously deeply, deeply racist. Zoos can be pretty terrible. Sure. I mean, I feel like I was fairly familiar with the, like, sort of pro-animal argument against zoos about, like, oh, cruelty to animals, like, keeping them locked up, but, like, I definitely was not aware of, like, people being displayed in zoos. That's quite alarming. Yeah. The idea of conservation with animals almost seems to have started out as a byproduct of zoos rather than an initial motivation. Mm. They might have been extinct in the wild, but hey, we got the giraffe in the zoo at least. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't until 1924 when the American Association of Zoological Parks and Aquariums was founded. They've changed their name since to something that's a lot simpler. And this is a nonprofit that holds zoos and aquariums up to a higher standard when it comes to caring for their animals. Zoos and aquariums uh, often to get like some funding uh, to get some animals. Even they need accreditation from this association. So things related to animal care, efforts for conservation, treatment of staff, even and involvement in global efforts for environmentalism and conservation all go towards zoos standing. So that's kind of where we're at with the 30s, with zoos. Most places tend to have these wrought iron bars, as the London Zoo was taken as the key example of a city zoo. Sure. If they had naturalistic landscapes, it was a fairly new thing, fairly as in like the last 20-ish years. Right. So, you know, obviously zoos have a wide variety of animals in them that people would go to see. Mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, we talk about zoos being educational, but also entertainment. And certainly for a long time, the entertainment aspect came from seeing exotic or more particularly dangerous animals. You know, the excitement of, oh, look, it's a lion in a cage. And, like, it's dangerous, but I'm safe because I'm human, basically, <laughs> and I've conquered the earth. You, you said that, like, the exhibits would sort of be taxonomic in their relationship, so we've got all the big cats over here, and we've got, you know, the reptile house and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. In this film, Murders in the Zoo, there's a lot of focus on herpetology and the reptile house. Okay. Uh, and specifically, uh, snakes. So uh, I know you have some information to tell us about some, some snake varieties. Yes. Um, so you had suggested that I focus on the green mamba. What you didn't tell me is uh, whether to focus on eastern or western African green mambas. Right. 
Yeah, just the African green mamba. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were actually two distinct versions. So um, I'm going to briefly cover both. For sure. So the eastern green mamba is kind of a more common snake. It lives all along eastern Africa and the coast, so from Egypt down the coast to Mozambique and the island of Madagascar. It averages around two meters in length, which for uh, people who don't know what a meter is, it's around six and a half feet. Okay, so quite a long snake. Yes. Taller than me, mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. And it eats what you would think a snake would eat. Birds, eggs, bats, rodents, that kind of usual stuff. Right. What makes it unusual among mambas is they are pretty shy. They actually tend to ambush prey versus this kind of go out and attack something. So these live in the trees. Okay, so they're arboreal. Yes, if you want to use the fancy word for it. Which is also why it's kind of hard to find them, so encounters with them isn't... It's not rare, but it's like a little uncommon. Yeah, they live in the trees, and... They're green, so they can be hard to spot. So how, how green are they? Because you said they're sort of blending in with the trees, but like, are they kind of like a, a dull green? You're going to laugh at this kind of green, like Luke Skywalker lightsaber green. Okay, so like a bright green. Yeah, it's kind of like a yellowy green. Right, like a bright emerald green. Yeah. Huh, okay. So despite this like behavior difference with other mambas... Um, they're still considered a mamba because um, they have hollowed, fixed fangs that put venom in your veins mm-hmm. when, uh, when they bite you. It's also considered a mamba because of they don't have hoods quite in the same way that cobras do, but it can kind of flatten its head a little bit. Okay, interesting. Mm-hmm. Its venom is a little, little scary. It has neurotoxins and cardiotoxins. Uh, neurotoxins attacking the nerves and the cardiotoxins attacking the heart or uh, muscle fibers. If you are bitten by one, you can expect swelling in the area, um, dizziness and nausea, difficulty breathing and swallowing, uh, irregular heartbeat, and even convulsions. And you will die in 30 minutes. All right. Or your money back. (laughs) Western African green mambas are a little different. Okay. They don't have as huge of a range of habitat. They're kind of focused on, like, that top western clump of Africa. Sure, you know what I mean? Okay. Algeria, Ghana, Guinea, the Ivory Coast, Liberia, Niger, and Nigeria. Mm Mm-hmm. They range from 1.4 meters to 2.4 meters, so from, like... Four feet to eight feet. Okay. Depending on the age. So still a big snake. Very big. Again, they'll eat birds, eggs, lizards, frogs, rodents, typical snake things. Though, like the eastern snake, it lives in trees. It'll commonly go on the ground. So it's more likely to be on the ground. They also differ in hunting style. They will actually pursue their prey. Um, they'll chase after it, they'll strike rapidly and repeatedly at it until the prey succumbs to the venom. So part of this means that they are less shy than the eastern green mamba. Right, they gotta kind of got to be more aggressive for the attack to work. Exactly. Um, but they'll still try to avoid confrontation, as most animals do with humans. However, it will fuck you up if it can't escape. 
So the venom is a little bit different as well. It still has these neurotoxins and cardiotoxins, but it also has, because those weren't enough, fasciculins, which cause muscle twitches and will paralyze the prey. Sure, which if you have to attack multiple times, that makes sense as a thing to include. Exactly. You would experience swelling in the area of the bite, local necrosis, so the skin and muscle actually dying right there, um, ataxia, a headache, drowsiness, vertigo, diarrhea, paralysis, and again, death within 30 minutes. Unpleasant. Yes. So, I think that gives us a pretty good framework to watch this movie in. This movie stars a version of the Green Mamba, but I think what you've just told us about the real snake's size and colors and appearance and venom and behavior is going to help us kind of judge what they use to depict it in this movie and how it's depicted in this movie. Okay. I I am really interested in what happens in this movie. Neither of us have seen it before. It no. should be it should be said. Yeah. Um but when Ben finds the films, he often takes a quick look to see, you know, what is the actual quality of this version, things like that. So I think that's why he's like dropping hints as to <laughs> what is ahead. Yeah, I, I haven't watched the movie. Um but I do I do know some things about it mm-hmm. uh due to my clairvoyance. <laughs> so when this movie was released, uh this movie came out March thirty first 1933. Critics were divided. Uh, So West Coast critics tended to give the film a positive review, mostly praising its power over audiences, that it invoked strong emotional responses in audiences. While East Coast papers were actually more tepid in their Mm. reaction to the movie, Uh, the New York Times expressed thankfulness for the comic relief elements Uh, for making the movie easier to watch because the horror elements were considered to be, quote, too effective, unquote. Hmm. That the the horror in the movie was too gruesome and too effective and too believable made apparently the movie very hard for people to watch and therefore made people very thankful to have the comic relief present. Uh, Overall, Charlie Ruggles' comedic performance was very well appreciated and received by audiences of the time. He was kind of people's favorite thing in this movie. Okay. Uh, By contrast, modern critics tend to find his presence to be aggravating (laughs) and hard to sit through. Sure. Uh, And instead they view the movie as a showcase for Lionel Atwell. Uh, Generally, this is considered to be his finest horror movie performance. Cool. I'm excited. So using your clairvoyance, your before-mentioned clairvoyance, how are we watching this movie today? Uh, Well, this film is currently available on DVD from Turner Classic Movies Home Video, uh, but there are no streaming options. So if you want to watch this movie, you're getting the TCM DVD. That's basically the only option right now. So it's not on our Scream Scene playlist, unfortunately. Head down to your local blockbuster. Yeah. (laughs) That's... There, there, there might be people, like, listening to this show who have never seen a blockbuster in their life. Well, if you still want to check out our website at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, till then, uh, you'll hear a brief musical interlude, and then we will be right back after watching the film. See you on the other side. 
Hey everyone, just a quick trigger warning for domestic and spousal abuse, attempted spousal rape, and animal-on-animal -animal violence in Murders in the Zoo. Also, general old-timey shittiness? Yes. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Murders in the Zoo from 1933. And holy shit. This is quite the movie. Well, I think like the second it finished, I was just sort of like I turned to you and I said like, what the hell is this movie? Yeah, there were a couple times that I felt it, but I actually said it out loud of like, holy shit. Oh my god. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a movie where it's like tough to believe what you're seeing sometimes. Yeah. But, like, sometimes that's because of the horror, and sometimes that's because of the comedy. Like, this movie's a little all over the place with tone. So, I am definitely one of the audience members who appreciated the comedy because it lightened the horror a little bit. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that, I think, more in the <laughs> discussion for sure. How about you give us a bit of a plot synopsis? Yeah, for sure. So, we begin the film in French Indochina, which, if you weren't alive in the 30s, translates to the Vietnam area, more or less today. Dr. Eric Gorman, who's played by Lionel Atwill, is on an expedition with his wife, Evelyn, who's played by Kathleen Burke, and they're on an expedition to collect rare exotic animals to bring back to America for a zoo. And as we open the film, Gorman is performing some kind of procedure on a man involving sewing needle and thread that we can't quite see at first, but he says uh, that this man will never lie again and never kiss another man's wife again. And this guy gets up and turns to the camera, and we can see through his bloody face that he's had his mouth sewn shut. And that's the first thing we see in this movie. Yeah. Like, that is a bold opening for a 1930s movie. That is nothing like, that is some Saw level shit <laughs> in this movie. Oh yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, so right off the bat, we know that Eric Gorman is not a man to be trifled with. On the boat ride home with all the animals in the hold, uh, we learn that not only is uh, Eric Gorman very obviously possessive of Evelyn, uh, but that she is seeing someone on the side. So it's not just dudes sort of taking passes at her. She is actually having an affair, which is understandable under the circumstances because the movie makes it very clear that she is not happy with her, you know, psychopath husband. Uh, so the man she's having an affair with is Roger Hewitt, uh, who also happens to be on the boat. And it's becoming clear that, like, Eric's getting very close to figuring out what's going on. His suspicion level is high, uh, which puts Roger in considerable danger that Evelyn keeps trying to warn him about, but he's like, hey, I'm going to stand up to him, and I'm going to take you away from all this, and you're going to be just fine. The zoo that they're bringing uh, these animals back to is the municipal zoo. I assume it's located in the city. <laughs> um, and the municipal zoo is run by a Professor Evans, who has a daughter, Jerry Evans, who works as a herpetologist, and she is in a romantic relationship with Dr. Jack Woodford, who is a herpetologist and toxicologist. So they kind of work together. 
And it should be said that uh, the guy who plays Professor Evans is Harry Beresford, who returns from Dr. X. Oh, was he in Dr. Oh, that's right. He was the... He was Dr. Duke, the doctor in the wheelchair. Yeah, who was all grumpy and stuff all the time, right? Yeah. Wow, I didn't recognize him. I guess the switch from two-tone Technicolor to black and white really obscures <laughs> some things sometimes. Professor Evans, who runs the zoo, has decided to hire a press agent to help drum up some publicity. And the press agent he has hired is Peter Yeats, who's our comic relief character, played by Charlie Ruggles. The implication is that Peter Yeats is getting this job because he can't get any other jobs because he is an alcoholic, which is played for comedy. And his first assignment is to go down to the dock, meet the ship arriving, and make, you know, a press story of, hey, we've got all these new animals. So Yeats goes down, he meets Dr. Gorman, and... In his attempt to find Gorman on the ship, he goes to Gorman's cabin, where he discovers Evelyn and Roger together and makes the mistake of thinking Roger's Dr. Gorman, and then makes the further mistake of when he meets the actual Dr. Gorman, telling him, oh, hey, there was this guy with your wife in your cabin, which, sorry, Roger. They all, you know, get the animals to the zoo and everything, and one of... Dr. Gorman's sort of prize finds from this particular expedition is a green uh, mamba that he's brought back that he sort of hands over to Jack and Jerry, their department. Uh, you know, hey, got this cool thing. Uh, he apparently picked it up in India, which is not where mambas are from, as Sarah told us earlier. But, you know, there's no known antivenom. And uh, Jack's like, oh, wow, I'll start trying to figure one out right away. And throughout the movie... This supposed green mamba is quite a shapeshifter. Uh, it is most often, I think, played by like a foot and a half long python. It is sometimes played by a rattlesnake for certain close-ups. At no point in the movie does it ever look anything like a six foot long bright emerald green mamba. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can't fault them for wanting to use a less dangerous snake. Because all the animals in this movie are definitely real. Yes. So the snake gets turned over for uh, some experimentation. And everybody's trying to come up with some ideas for how to drum up business for the zoo. Peter Yeats, the press agent, comes up with the idea of like, hey, what if we invite a bunch of rich, fancy folk for like a glamorous dinner in the middle of the carnivora house and make like a novelty publicity stunt out of it? And everyone's like, that sounds stupid. Uh, except for Dr. Gorman, who's like, oh, yeah, like, invite some random rich people here? For sure, that's a great idea. I'll get working on it right away. Because in this way, he can basically maneuver Roger Hewitt to the zoo, where he's now on, like, Gorman's turf, basically. Mm. Meanwhile, uh, Roger and Evelyn are discussing how Roger's going to get Evelyn to Paris, and then arrange for her divorce, and then come and meet her. So kind of getting her away from uh, her husband before going through with everything, when all of a sudden, Dr. Gorman shows up at Roger's apartment, and Evelyn has to, like, quickly hide in another room. Because of how quickly she has to hide, we see that, you know, Gorman notices things like her lipstick on a teacup uh, in the apartment and things like that, as he invites Roger to this dinner at the zoo. So it's the, the dinner, and... All these swanky people are there. There's a lot of comic relief stuff about uh, Peter Yeats trying to get the photographers to pay attention to him when he wants to, uh, stuff like that. And Gorman has arranged it so that he's sitting on one side of the table across 
from Roger and Evelyn on the other side of the table who are sitting side by side, which probably made for a very awkward, tense dinner uh, until Roger suddenly yells out in pain and, like, collapses, and everybody starts panicking, and they look at it, and it's like he's got a big bite on his leg that would have come from the mamba. Uh, and he's poisoned, and he's dying from the poison. So everybody's like, oh, the, the mamba's loose, and everybody freaks out and flees from the zoo, and this is, you know, not great for the publicity side of things. Oh. And Jack tries to save Roger's life, but it's it's pretty much impossible with how fast-acting the mamba venom is. They actually give the time as five minutes, I think, in this movie, which is like, wow. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, there's no anti-venom, so Roger dies. Evelyn and Eric go home. And, and she's, Evelyn is in shock. She's in shock. And she confronts Eric about it. Because how did an eight-foot-long bright emerald snake sneak through this dinner party and then attack only Roger and then just disappear. So she accuses Eric of killing him. And Eric's like, well, like, how, how did I pull that off? Do you think I had the snake up my pocket or whatever is some line that he has? And they kind of have a bit of a row and she's getting more and more frightened of him and he's getting more and more intense. And the more frightened she gets, the more aroused Eric gets. And he sort of announces that he's going to make love to her and she does not want him to and that, again, is sort of a turn-on for him. And she kind of gets away from him and gets into the bedroom and locks the door. And he's not too pleased with this and announces that he's going to be back in five minutes and he better find that door open. And it is definitely 100% worth saying that in 1933, in America, spousal rape was completely legal. Yeah. So he leaves her for a little bit. Uh, she starts packing her bags. And... He goes over to his office and, like, locks the door. And that sort of makes Evelyn curious enough to get out onto the balcony and kind of sneak over to try and look into the window of the office that is adjacent to the bedroom. And there she sees that Eric's kind of fiddling around with his desk. He's got something. He's locked it into a drawer. So she waits for him to leave the office, climbs in through the office window. Jimmy's opened the drawer and finds a severed mamba head that you can squeeze and still get venom out of, that you can kind of hold in your hand and, and attack people with. And this is clearly, like, the murder weapon then. Understandably confused when he gets to the bedroom door and, you know, it's still locked and he bursts through it and Evelyn's gone... Uh, you know, Eric's looking around like, where is she? And she's got the mamba head and leaves the house uh, to get to the zoo to tell everyone what's going down. But Eric hears the front door close and goes after her. He follows her to the zoo and she gets in. He follows her in and they get to the alligator pond. And earlier in the movie, there was a sequence where we kind of see all the various exhibits and we, we saw this alligator pond. And basically it's a fairly shallow pond chock full of alligators with like a wood bridge that like the regular people who visit the zoo can just walk over the pond on that's maybe like a foot and a half away from the water and there's no like 
fencing or anything. Like, I remember the first time we saw this in the movie, I turned to you and I was like, that doesn't seem very safe. <laughs> so here we are at Chekhov's Alligators. <laughs> and uh, Eric and Evelyn have, you know, another confrontation. She makes it clear that she's, like, not going to be quiet about any of this. And so he tosses her in the pond. And the alligators eat her. Holy shit. Yeah. So the next day, the zoo's closed because they all think, you know, hey, there's a green mamba on the loose and we haven't found it yet. Uh, but some rambunctious boys sneak into the zoo because the bars on the fence are not close enough together uh, and are playing at the alligator pond and discover the tattered remnants of Evelyn's dress. And, you know, Professor Evans and Jack realize kind of what's happened. They call up Gorman and Lionel Atwell, like, just gives this, like, great performance where he's pretending to be shocked and appalled, but clearly, you know, is just pretending. Uh, and he comes down to the zoo and he blames Jack for her death, negligence and safety negligence and all this sort of stuff. And I'm going to sue all you guys and charge you for crimes and blah, 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 blah. I'm so outraged. So between Evelyn dying and Roger dying, publicity for the zoo is pretty bad, mm -hmm. and they're, they're having to shut down. All this just means the zoo is going to have to shut down. And in the process of cleaning out, you know, all the cages to get all the animals out and everything, they discover the missing mamba just chilling in some hay, yeah, some straw in one of the animal cages. Uh, you know, very abnormal for an arboreal snake on the loose, but... They bring the mamba back to the lab, and they're examining it, and Jack realizes that the bite width of the missing mamba does not match the bite width on Roger. And they know that when Evelyn died, she was trying to see Jack, because that's how she got into the zoo. She told the front guard, like, hey, I'm here to see Dr. Woodford, and never made it to him. So he kind of puts two and two together, calls up Gorman, is like, hey, I found out something interesting that you might want to know about. Or maybe it'll just come out in the court case. Who knows? And so Gorman's like, shit. And grabs his severed mamba head to, and heads down to the lab to meet Jack. And there's a very tense scene. It sort of rides the line between tense and comedic a little bit because it's Gorman trying to like wait for Jack to turn around so he can bite him with the snake head. And, you know, there's a few times where Jack, like, you know, turns back to face Gorman, and Gorman has to pretend, like, that he just, you know, was, has his, you know, he has to pretend he wasn't sneaking up on him. Uh, but he finally does attack Jack, bite him with the mamba head, and then he's trying to figure out, like, how he can make this look not intentional. So he takes the green mamba out of its terrarium, beats it to death with, like, a stick, and then places the dead mamba near the poisoned Jack so as to make it look like Jack got bit examining the snake because it, it got loose and then, like, killed it, but then succumbed to the poison. And just as he's, like, leaving, Jerry comes in and is all like, oh, yeah, like, I was here to meet Jack or whatever, and goes into the room and she's like, oh, no, like, he's been poisoned. And Gorman tries to, like, feign surprise as well. Uh, but then she says, well, I'll just go get the anti-venom. Because <laughs> it turns out that Jack was successful in trying to make an anti-venom over the last couple days. And Gorman didn't know about it. So Jerry goes over to the lab to get the anti-venom. And, you know, Gorman's like, oh, shit. So he goes over and tries to attack her. 
and she like pulls like a baton or something out of nowhere and just brains him over the head with it and runs out the room, runs into the lab, locks the door, you know, pumps Jack full of the anti-venom, calls up Peter Yeats, who then hits the alarm on all, you know, the zoo, so then the cops show up, and Gorman's like, fuck, and uh, he's running from the cops, and they're closing in on him, and they've got him surrounded in the carnivora house. So, in order to create a distraction, Gorman releases, like, all of, like, the big jungle cats from their cages. And there's, like, a lot of footage of these real lions and tigers and leopards. No bears. No bears. There are bears in other parts of the movie, but not this one. Getting out of their cages, and they kind of just all start attacking each other. Like, there's not (laughs) much of an animal wrangler on this set, like... We're seeing the real behavior of these caged-up animals going at it with each other for quite a while. And, you know, it definitely stops the cops from getting any closer. But then Gorman realizes that, like, he's trapped in a building with a bunch of hungry animals and is like, wait, shit, and runs out and is running from these animals and runs into this room and, like, closes the cage behind him. And, I mean, this would be, like, a hilarious Looney Tunes gag if it wasn't being played so seriously uh, as a deadly situation in this movie, but he closes the door, but he's locked himself in the boa constrictor cage. Specifically, an anaconda. Is it an anaconda? That's an anaconda. Okay. The snake, like, lunges and bites him, and then wraps itself around him, and then crushes him to death, and that's the end of Gorman. Jack lives, thanks to the anti-venom and Jerry's quick action, and Peter Yeats is drinking again, because, like, who wouldn't at this point, and wandering around the zoo getting into comedy hijinks with lions. The end. Uh, I would drink two if this was my job. (laughs) I left out a lot of the comedy bits in my plot summary. I will say that, because they are not important to the plot. They basically come down to Peter Yeats is afraid of animals and is working with animals. Uh, But what did you think of Murders in the Zoo, Sarah? Oh... Like, I'm not kid- kidding. I, I I might need a drink after seeing this movie. I appreciated how the horror wasn't supernatural. Mm-hmm. It wasn't science as magic. It was husband is a sadistic abuser. Yeah. He gets his comeuppance after domestic murders. You know, I was going back through the list, and, like, I think this has got to be one of the most realistic movies we've seen so far. Yeah, I can't. Like, I can't think of another film we've seen that's been this firmly set in the real world and realistic in its violence too. Like mm-hmm. not just with the animals fighting each other, but like when we see him like sewing the guy's lips, and like we see it, like see it, the guy turn to the camera. Yeah, it it looks very real when he's attacking Jack. Like you see blood on his hand and on the shirt. Yeah, and you don't see a lot of gore in movies of this era, right? Even when people get shot, there's never, like, a bullet hole or anything. There's just a puff of smoke. They twirl around and fall down. We see Evelyn hit the water. Yeah, like, I think it must be there's enough of a cut to a wider shot there that it must be some sort of stunt double. Yeah, it's it's very effective. It's very effective. And you're right in the way that the, the violence is realistic it's it's grisly, really, for a film of this era. Other films, even other films we've seen that sort of take place in the real world, like 
Mystery of the Wax Museum or Cat in the Canary even have these heightened elements maybe where like the sets are very fantastical, you know, or the production design or whatever. This movie is just set in the real world. Everything in the movie is plausible and it's possible. Once you get past the biological inaccuracies in the depiction of the mamba, it's clear that just the writer, you know, when thinking of poisonous snakes had read maybe like a an article about mambas the week before or something. That was the snake the writer was familiar with. But it's it's still kind of funny to me that, like, the snake as shown doesn't even match the dialogue. Because the dialogue references this eight-foot-long snake and people are carrying in, you know, their two hands this tiny little thing. But, yeah, it's it's a very realistic movie. Lionel Atwell... Is amazing in this film. Is terrifying in this film. I think... This performance is what you were wanting from him in Vampire Bat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a much better job of... The thing, the difference is the audience knows Eric Gorman's a piece of shit from, like, frame one in this movie. Literally. So it, so it isn't really a twist, but it is a twist for the characters because they don't know until later. But either, regardless of how its story structure handled, his performance is much more subtle in terms of sort of turning on the charm one moment and then being cold as ice the next. It's a much better performance here Mm -hmm. than what was in Vampire Bat. And, like, his character doesn't have, like, depth in it in the way that you would describe, like, Henry Frankenstein's character Mm -hmm. as having depth to it. Eric is evil through and through, Mm -hmm. but Atwell's performance of it is multifaceted. Yes, we see this callousness in his face uh, in the beginning when he's sewing the guy, guy's face shut. Yeah. Um, we see this sadistic joy when he's terrifying Evelyn. Mm-hmm. And, like, it made my skin crawl mm-hmm. when he lets the cats loose in the carnivora yeah. house. And before, like, they start coming towards him and he gets scared, like, he has this sense of, like, pride or something seeing animals be so aggressive and um, harmful to each other. He has this look on his face. I took it as, like, he's among his kind. Yeah, yeah. He He has these lines that are like, I prefer animals to people because they are unbiased. They're simple. Yeah, they're they're simple. They eat, they sleep, they kill, or something like that. Which is, like, you know, probably describes Gorman just as well, right? He doesn't have a lot of depth. I feel like that identification with the animal kingdoms, the, like, kind of closest thing to letting us into his psychology that the movie allows. But, like, from the performance, you can see he's a psychopath. Yes. But he's a very powerful on-screen presence. You know, he, he totally captures your attention. And, I mean, you just, you know from the get-go how fucked the people who cross him are. You know, there's so many scenes in this movie where especially in the early part of the movie, where someone, like, makes a minor slip-up around him, and he has this look on his face that just, you're watching it going, oh, no, buddy, you fucked up. And the way that Lionel Atwell does this double-edged sword to his charm, Mm -hmm. like, when he's approaching Roger on the ship, Evelyn and Roger try to pass off like she's telling him about Eric's animals, and when Eric approaches them, he's like, Roger, I didn't know you were interested. In my animals. Yeah, there's a lot of really good lines that work on both levels throughout the the film. When he comes to Roger's apartment to ask him to come to the dinner, he has these lines about, like, you and I share a mutual interest. 
And Roger's like, oh shit. And he's like, the animals. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's, it's miles above what we've seen him do to this point. And I'm not saying that he was bad in any of the previous movies we've seen, but this is like... So good. This is light years beyond it. Atwill's kind of had a bit of an arc over these four movies that we've seen him in. In Doctor X, he was a good guy who was a red herring for the villain. And then in Vampire Bat, we think he's a good guy until there's a twist midway through, and then he's a bad guy. In Mystery of the Wax Museum, he's an asshole who you don't like with this tragic background that makes it pretty obvious he's the villain. And then, yes, there's a twist and he's the villain. And then here, he's the asshole and the villain through and through from, you know, minute one. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of been this, like, slow turning of the knob of the dial on Lionel Atwell from uh, good guy to villain over these four movies. Yeah, it's been really interesting to see. I know you were really rolling your eyes at the comedy, but I'm not kidding when I'm really with the audience members of the time who, like, I don't know if I could have gotten through this movie if it hadn't had been for Charlie Ruggles. And I will say that I think his character, even with the comedy, serves a purpose in this film. Okay, I agree and disagree with you. <laughs> so the purpose he serves is that, like, everyone, everyone is just, like, nonchalant about <laughs> these animals. They're like, oh, yeah, there's a rattlesnake behind you. Oh, yeah, we have we designed this to have a walkway over the alligators. Right. Oh, yeah, the cats of prey, the predatory cats have bars wide enough that they can their claws can reach out and get you. <laughs> Which happens. Which That's fucking happens. And the entire time Charlie Ruggles is like freaking out. He freaks out at the photographers for accidentally almost pulling the cord which opens up the doors to the cats. Like yeah. he is like almost like the identifying character for us because we are also being like, what the fuck are you guys doing? In the sense of like, you're angering Eric, and you know? Yeah. He's the identifying character uh, if you are terrified of these animals in the <laughs> audience, right? Like if you're, I feel like if you're more comfortable with animals, you might be identifying more with Jack or Jerry. Yeah. But, but I see what you're saying. I see the point you're making. But his outlets of being scared of these things that like, as an audience member, you might not be afraid of, like, the tiger in the cage. Like, it allows a little bit of a release from s having just seen at will sew a man's face shut. Yeah, for sure. You know, as much as I have some mixed feelings on the comedy in this movie, honestly, my opinion more or less aligns with yours. Like, I have a very positive opinion of the comedy in this movie. I, I, I totally agree that the comedy in this movie works in the sense of providing relief from the horror. I totally agree with you that this movie would probably be a little too much if it didn't stop for some Charlie Ruggles now and then. I, I absolutely... This is a harrowing, gruesome, grisly movie. Some of his comic bits are a little forced. Some of them aren't maybe, like, in the strictest sense of the word, funny. But they're appreciated. <laughs> I think percentage-wise, there's maybe a bit too much of it. There's a, a stretch of the film, particularly in about, I would say, the, the first or second act, where there's a long stretch of him before we kind of get back to the movie actually having some scary in it. 
And that was when I was starting to lose patience. But I, I will overall agree with you that it is a necessary part of the movie. You know, you, you made a great argument for Peter Yeats having a purpose in terms of something for the audience to latch on to, mm. um, which I think makes a lot of sense. My issue with Peter Yeats is more that he's purposeless in terms of the narrative structure. That, like, you could take, in terms of the story, you could take the character out of the movie entirely and nothing changes. But I will give it to Charlie Ruggles for managing to make Peter Yeats much more charming and tolerable as a character than I think that character would have just been on the page. Yeah. Um, he's, he's surprisingly not tough to sit through. And I, I don't really know if that's because of how good he is or just because the rest of the movie is so intense that you're just kind of grateful for any sort of break, you know? Yeah. I said a little earlier that I really liked the writing in terms of, you know, those double-edged lines, right? Those double entendre sort of lines that Atwell gets. Overall, I really think the script is very cleverly assembled. Definitely, I would agree. Like, it sets up everything you need to know for both character and plot, right? You know who Gorman is. You know what Evelyn's deal is. Like, you know who all these people are. And so how they act and what results from their actions flows logically, makes sense. And all of the things you need for the plot get set up, too. Like The cord that yes, pulls open the cats. Exactly. Like, that's set up, as you said, as a gag. We learn about that from a joke. But then that becomes crucial to the climax later. Yeah. That's a perfect example. The bridge over the alligators. The bridge over the alligators that we see the first time just as an innocuous thing, and then it's important. Or even the way that, like, the anti-venom that saves Jack is just, like, something that's sort of said offhandedly, you know, hey, I've got a mamba for you. Maybe you can find an anti-venom for it. And then, ta-da, that's what saves his life at the end. Like, nothing comes out of nowhere. The other way that the writing in the script is is done so well is that it feels a lot like Old Dark House in that there's backstory to these people in a way. Mm. Like, these feel like full people. Yeah. Maybe it's also because it's set so realistically, but it f does feel like we're just kind of popping to these people's lives. I did get the feeling that I appreciated that all these people f who work at the Sioux feel like co-workers. Mm. Even Peter Yeats, who's new, sort of gets accepted into the group, as it were, fairly quickly. And maybe it's just because, like, when some of our more important characters are talking to ancillary characters who are like zoo guards or whatever everyone addresses each other by first name they're all very familiar with each other it just gives you that sense of like these people all know each other to a degree that i think really helps sell the movie mm -hmm. kathleen burke as evelyn is really good yeah it was really cool to see her do acting because like <laughs> she was acting as the panther woman yeah it's just the, but it's a different kind yeah the, the the thing about the panther woman in island of lost souls is it's such a it's it's not a traditional you know acting role and so it was nice to see her in a more familiar context to judge her ability to perform i guess yeah this really gives you that sense of like not just a pretty face you know what i mean for sure and the fact that she like fell into this job, basically, through mm -hmm. this, like, wacky competition. It's you know, really cool. Yeah, for sure. 
Gail Patrick fell into the job the same way. Yeah. Like, they're both together here. Um, I think, overall, the, the women in this movie are, are pretty excellent. Yes. Um, you know, Evelyn's an adulteress, but we know why. We can see what's put her in that position. And she's not only sympathetic, but she's heroic. She's the one who finds the mamba head. And there's never a sense anywhere in the movie that she deserves her fate. Yes, the film's compassionate towards her. Mm-hmm. There isn't this sense of like, well, she, you know, she had to die because she was an adulteress and adultery is wrong. It's all, there's none of that. It's all just that her husband is a monster, plain and simple. And with Gail Patrick as Jerry, like, she, she actually gets, like, a bit of the action towards she, the end. She rescues Jack. Yeah, she, it's so great. She rescues the guy. When she's confronted with the villain, she's not imperiled. She bumps him on the head and runs out. She's a career woman scientist in a committed relationship with another scientist. And they're only unmarried because they can't afford to get married. <laughs> um, yeah, she's great too. Yeah. What did you think of the other actors? So Jack and... I guess Roger. Jack was fine. Um, Randolph Scott was just very like, I'm the hero in this movie. Yeah. Um, judging him against a lot of the other heroes we've sort of seen in the young couple trope. <laughs> Randolph Scott, I like a little better. He's still kind of just nothing there, but he doesn't feel as ineffectual as some of these guys have been in the past. That might be the fact that Randolph Scott was mostly like a tough western hero and that's kind of rubbing off here like this is kind of the equivalent of like a 2017 movie where you go and like they're trying to convince you that like henry cavill or arnie hammer is like a dorky scientist like that's sort of the the the, the, the thing that's going on here were that it were so simple yes Exactly. He fills out those 30s suits very well, though. Yes. Um, he does a fairly good job. Like, he, when he actually gets to do something with the plot, i.e. measure the difference of the bite widths. Or the scene where he confronts Gorman. It, like, he's good in it. Yeah, I think he is good. I think he's, there's just not a lot there for him to be, but he manages to be better than some of these guys we've had in the past. David Manners. Yeah, exactly. As for Roger, who's played by John Lodge, he's surprisingly good. Mm -hmm. I actually really liked his performance, considering this is a guy who, like, acted for nine years on kind of a lark after getting a law degree, basically between getting a law degree and becoming a career politician, right? Like um, <laughs> This is like his gap year in yeah. being a politician. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but he's, like, real good. I yeah. thought he, and especially because I think this is only his second movie or something, like, no, I thought he was really good. He really pulled off that part. There is a, a very interesting, like, we see his apartment and it's super swanky, and, like, he's clearly well-off and wealthy, as are the Gormans. Uh, it's made evident in the plot that, like, Gorman 
is a millionaire. Like, he's not getting paid by the zoo to get these animals so much as, like, it seems like he just goes off on expeditions to get animals for fun, and then it's like, oh, what do I do with these now? I guess I'll give them to the zoo. Yeah. Uh, like, Evelyn has these fur-lined coats and stuff. They're well off. But there is, like, a neat line where Gorman's talking to Roger, and he said, you know, he's trying to get the donations for the zoo, and he says, like, hey, like, you're one of the few people left with money that, like, reminds you, oh, right, it's the Depression. Between the realistic tone and setting of this movie, and add on top of that the sort of long comedy sequences designed to give us an opportunity to catch our breath, it makes this movie feel very different from the other horror films of this era. Okay. There's a there's a very sort of different feel, right? We don't have the crazy sets or the German expressionist lighting or the, you know, vampires coming to get you. <laughs> I mean, the lighting still has expressionist elements. Okay. In the confrontation scene between Eric and Jack, there's lighting on the walls that is like silhouetting the tubes and vials that mm-hmm. Jack uses to create anti-venom. Mm-hmm. So like there is like visual throwbacks almost, I think, to that style. Yeah, but it, it's certainly, in terms of its look, one of the most toned down movies we've seen. I do think the visuals are are, are effective. They don't, yes. you know, this movie, I want to make it sound like this movie isn't visually interesting or isn't trying anything, that it's bland. It's not. It's just not, like, out there. It's like, not so, Caligari. Yeah. You know? <laughs> um, so for me... It did, as I was watching the movie, beg the question of whether this was horror or whether it was a thriller. Just because of this difference that it, that I felt watching it of, like, this is very different from all these other movies we've seen. So does that make it a different genre? And I do have an opinion on the issue, but I wanted to open up the question. Um, this is 100% horror. Not only in the sense that had Evelyn lived, she would have been more of a survivor rather than a hero. These people just had, like, this person who they thought, like, was this big philanthropist who they kind of had the heebie-jeebies about, but, like... Yeah, he was an ass, but, like, we rely on him. Yeah, turns out to have committed multiple murders, Mm -hmm. including throwing his wife in an alligator pit. Yeah. (sighs) So plot-wise, that, to me, is why it's a horror, but for... The audience. I I really identified with the audience, as I've said, but you, you mentioned that the reviews of the time thought it was, like, a big enough deal to talk about how engaged the audience was with what's happening on screen. Mm-hmm. And I felt that. It's because what you're supposed to be afraid of isn't this creature from the Black Lagoon, isn't... Am I allowed to make that reference? That movie yeah, hasn't sure. happened yet. Um, Time travel. <laughs> and it's not a, a, an artist gone insane and wanting to make you into one of his wax creatures. Mm-hmm. It's a psychopathic husband. Yeah. And you kind of already said this. It wasn't illegal to commit spousal rape. Beating your wife was only made illegal in the United States in 1920. Mm-hmm. But even, like, legality aside, domestic violence is still, like... A prevalent issue. In an incredibly prevalent and invisible issue today. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, like, this movie makes that the the fear, I think, like, that's why people were enraptured. This is something very real, something 
that people in the audience would have been going through even at that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Not just like, oh, escaped, but going through or known someone going through. And it was a normalized thing. That's the other thing. His behavior is taken to the extreme, but at the root of, like, his behavior, that's normalized even today. Yeah, like, ultimately, you know, we talked about how the movie does a lot of work to stress that Evelyn's the sympathetic party and Eric's a monster. But, like, in a court of law in the 1930s, Eric could very, I think, confidently make the argument that my wife was an adulteress, therefore she committed a crime against me, therefore my murder of these two people is justified. Like, that's an argument that he could have made in court. You know, and and I'm not saying he would have gotten away with that argument, but the society was such that that argument could be made. Yeah. Um, so I, I totally agree with you there. One of the interesting bits of the critical response, you know, I talked about, they said that the film was too effective. What they meant, what the context of that was, was they were remarking on how the film's portrayal of this kind of person and these kind of events and this kind of psychology was too realistic. Mm. That it was too identifiably real. Um, That even if you were to normally have a character like this in the movie, the expectation was that you'd sort of dial the melodrama up enough that maniacal laughter yeah like that you'd or that you know so you'd have gorman be a little bit more like i've got you now but you'd also have evelyn dialed up so that she was like crying and in hysterics and stuff right like dialing up the melodrama so that there's a, a level of separation of reality there but the performances here are much more subtle evelyn you know, she's clearly terrified of him. She's clearly in shock. She's clearly upset. She's clearly traumatized by this guy from the conversations she has with Roger where he's like, I'm going to take you away from all this. And she's like, yeah, nope. But she's not over the top in hysterics or anything. Yeah. You know, there isn't melodrama in this movie. And that was the thing that everyone kind of found a little alarming when this movie came out and made them go like, yeah, we'd much rather just have a whole movie of Charlie Ruggles, please. Hit too close to home for them. Yeah. I definitely agree with you that this is horror. I want to make that clear. I just wanted to bring up the question Mm -hmm. because when we see a movie like this and there isn't a spooky castle, you know, and there isn't a a charming Romanian count. um, It's a good question to ask. Yeah. And I think the key element here is, is, you know, horror is based around making the audience feel afraid. And you're definitely afraid of Eric Gorman. Yes. And the focus is on victims of horrific forces. And thrillers, you know, we talk about thrillers are eliciting excitement and suspense from the audience. And this movie's got suspense in it, for sure. But the other thing about thrillers is they're more focused on the person who defeats that evil force, right? They're procedurals. It's one of the reasons we we classified... Uh, the remake of Unheimlich Geschichten as a thriller, because the the focus was on this guy hunting down the villain, right? Yeah. So I've only got one complaint about this movie, Sarah. It's a bit of a nitpick. Okay. So does the zoo still get closed down? Or what? Like, it's not resolved. They make so much money from creating this anti-venom. 
Oh, that's that a, yeah. The couple gets to go get married. They they still shut down the zoo. There's no way the zoo is oh, continuing. Yeah. Well, this is so. This was my problem. Is like we see all these people get laid off, and you know all the animals have to be sold off to, and who knows where they're going to. Like you know, 1930s zoo ain't great, but it's better than stuffed in some guy's house. On the flip side, it is very hard to see how their run of bad publicity could be overturned by the revelation of like. Hey, our leading animal collector was a psychopath and got himself killed by an anaconda in this zoo. Like, that's that's just more bad publicity. That's not going to help. So I kind of feel bad because all of our heroes depended on this zoo staying open for their livelihood. And yeah, the villain's dead, but they're all fired in the middle of the Depression still. It was just, that's the only thing that bothers me. That's the real horror show. Yeah, unemployment. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on to ranking. Yeah. Let's try to rank this guy. So I'm really glad we did the discussion, Sarah. Okay. Because I think it's it, it helps a lot in narrowing down where I was thinking. Because I ended up, before we had the discussion, I had a very wide range on this movie. Okay. I didn't really know where to put it or what to do with it. So I'm glad we talked it through uh, and talked about all the things we liked about it. And, and before we get started, I should note, Paramount Pictures has done very well. On this list. Consistently. Yeah, they have uh, they have three movies on the list so far, which are at number one, number four, and number 31. Okay, so that third one isn't doing as What's great. What's that number 31? Uh, the the uh, John Barrymore, Jekyll and Hyde. But in terms of sound movies of the 1930s, <laughs> uh, Paramount's got the number one and number four spot. So they've been doing pretty well for themselves. So my initial range for this film... Uh, my ceiling was at number nine, okay. so um, below Nosferatu, above Phantom of the Opera was my ceiling, and then my floor was number 23, below the mummy, above the vampire bat. That's how wide my range was on this guy. But it's on the upper half of the list, you yes. know? So yeah, I, I, I knew, don't have to be completely upset no, with you. No, like, I knew I liked it, I just... Nowhere. It's so different from, like, the other horror films we've been watching, as I said, that it was really hard for me to compare it to things. It was like, you know, this versus Vampire. Like, what do you <laughs> even do with that? Uh, so what was your range, Sarah? Um, well, typically when we do ranking, mm -hmm. my range is 20 to 40. Right. And you're like, well, my range... Is 15 to 20. Right. And then we talk about it, and I'm like, cool, we'll put it at 15. <laughs> right. You know? Um, this time, I'm... My range is above yours. Okay. I'll tell you my range, and I'll kind of explain why I was looking here. For sure. So, so what's the range? Like, top 10. Okay. When I was looking at ranking, I, again, was having trouble, just like you. And so I, st I decided to look at other... Films that also felt down to earth like this one did. Fair. So from the top bottom, number two, Old Dark House, it is fairly down to earth. There's yeah. no explicit supernatural, but there is like a feeling of the fall of the House of Usher type curse deal. Yeah, like the house itself is spooky and weird. Um, and like family. the family's got like some just bizarreness to it. And there is some stuff with like, you know, that one shot where like, um, her shadow comes up behind the other girl, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. So yeah, it's, it's set in the real world, but it's like a very 
a bizarre corner of the real world. <laughs> there's no vampires, you know? Yes, like, there's yeah. no things like that. For sure. Um, next was number four, Island of Lost Souls. Okay. Because, and we talked about this in the episode, it's sort of down to earth. It feels like it could happen here if you could plausibly accept... The uplift. The uplift yeah. thing. It's the H.G. Wells rule of one... Crazy thing. And then everything else is normal. Yeah. So if you can accept that, everything else kind of falls into place. Mm-hmm. And then the next one was at number 10, Cat and the Canary. Right. Which which takes place in, like Dark House, it takes place in the real world in a weird, spooky house. And it does have the case of the monster having the face pulled off and... It's like her cousin. Or right, whatever. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Scooby-Doo ending. <laughs> so with looking within these, I I felt like this is a contender, definitely in the top ten, but between two and seven. Okay. Seven being Caligari. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, yeah. So your range is, is wholly above mine. There's no overlap here. I will say the thing that I was having difficulty with was like, you know, you start to compare aspects of these movies, right? Which movie has the better fear? Which movie has the spookier cinematography? Which movie has the creepier performances? This kind of stuff. And that's where I, you know, I ran into trouble because it's like Cat and the Canary looks more like a horror movie and, you know, both have comedy elements, but like when Murders in the Zoo is is being scary, it's it's definitely scarier. And like you said, it's hitting a real-world issue that's so close to home. And, I mean, Cat in the Canary does a little bit, too, but it's like, no one will take you seriously if you're a woman versus your husband's out to kill you if you're a woman. Yeah. Um, so I'm just sort of... I guess I'm just talking through why I had these difficulties. Looking between the bottom of your range and the top of mine, just to start, just to give us a starting place, I thought this was... Better than Phantom of the Opera. Yes. Well, I was I was allowing for it to be better than Phantom of the Opera. And I it was sort of because, like, again, there's, like, a, a, a big tone difference between the very fantastical world that Phantom takes place in versus this movie. But the horror in Phantom of the Opera is about the horror of being pursued by, like, a creepy psychopath guy. And, you know, you get rescued because Ral's there. The difference between the two movies is, is like Evelyn was pursued by a creepy psychopath guy and lost, and now she's with a creepy psychopath dude, right? Murders in the Zoo is like, what if Phantom of the Opera won and then had to like defend, you know, Christine from being taken away from him and go after everyone trying to rescue her all the time, but he's mm. already won. Yeah. You know? So it starts you in a darker place already. So, that, so I kind of felt that. But then, like, I just, there's, you know, Nosferatu's so iconic and all that kind of stuff that that's when I started, like, something about the iconic nature of Nosferatu and Caligari and Dracula and Frankenstein and the fact that, like, when you say, you know, we talk a lot that we're ranking horror movies, not just movies, and when you say horror, so much of the movies in our top ten are, like, what instantly spring to mind, and, like, I've never really, like, Murders in the Zoo's, like... Who's even heard of this movie? I thought it was going to be a vampire bat situation, you know? Right. I had a reluctance to consider it against those movies. And, you know, I'm not saying that we can't consider it against those movies. I'm just sort of explaining I had, like, a bias going in, right? 
kind of where I was having difficulty is, and I, I forget when we were discussing this, but that conversation we had about simplicity versus complexity. Yeah, that was our, um, I was trying to argue you up on Island of Lost Souls over Frankenstein, right. where Island of Lost Souls was very simple and to the point, and Frankenstein was complex, but Frankenstein's complexity meant that it's a little all over the map mm-hmm. in, in quality and tone. Because I was thinking about, um, when I first started looking at ranking, I was looking at Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, they because the, the um, domestic abuse themes. Exactly. I, I think it's because Eric Gorman is not given the complex psychology that we see in these other ones. Like, obviously, Jekyll and Hyde, because it's like the split personality, whatever. But in even Island of Lost Souls with Moreau, yeah, it is complex, has like this god complex, is a little like manipulative in the same kind of way. So a lot of similarities between the way Atwell plays Gorman and the way Lawton played Moreau. Definitely. But there's like a, a depth to Moreau that maybe I'm not seeing it, but just doesn't feel like it's there with Gorman. I feel like for me... You know, if we're talking about the domestic abuse stuff in Jekyll and Hyde versus this film, I think this film does a very good job of portraying Gorman and Evelyn. It feels like a very real example of this kind of case, but I think it's very easy for everyone in the audience watching this movie to be able to point at Gorman and say, that guy's a villain. Yes. And that's good. It's very good that the movie does that. But what it also means is any man in the audience can probably look at that movie and go, oh, well, he's a bad guy. I'm not like him. The thing about Jekyll and Hyde is it, it not only dramatizes to us what domestic abuse looks like from the woman's perspective and shows us that Hyde's a monster so that we can recognize this behavior is monstrous, but by giving it to us from Jekyll's point of view where he's a good guy just until... He becomes mm-hmm. Hyde. It allows us to recognize that there are plenty of terrible, abusive people out there who think of themselves as good guys, or maybe are good guys until they're not. Yeah, you know, and stuff, and that complexity of being of making you, if you're watching that movie, question, right? So that's, I think, for me, the thing that puts Jekyll and Hyde above it. Definitely. So looking towards the bottom of your range. What is in this movie that's better than Nosferatu and Caligari, which are iconic, but also, by this point, a little old? (laughs) Um, You know, where are you coming from? Is it just the fact that, you know, Caligari and Nosferatu's horror is so kind of fairy tale compared to this one's? Is that the main thing? I think a little bit. But I think it's also, um, to kind of point to Caligari more so than Nosferatu, Caligari's fear was fear of being manipulated mm-hmm. and of the authority manipulating you and not having your best interests at, at heart. Right. Whereas this fear in Murders in the Zoo is you are stuck with this manipulator. There's no real escape. He's worse than a manipulator. He's a murderer. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more personal. Right. So, but, but the argument's an argument being made on the, the sort of thematic 
horror of the film being stronger. Yes, and I think because of that personal nature, you know, it, something will strike you in the heart deeper mm-hmm. if you have that connection to it. Which is why films that are, like, a bit more out there, I guess, like, even just looking at The Magician, right? you know, at number 25, there's, you don't feel, like, that personal nature to it. Even looking at 22 with the vampire bat, mm-hmm. at Atwill's performance, it doesn't feel, like, maybe this is telling about my own history, but, like, it doesn't feel as, like, personal or, like, I guess traumatic. Well, yeah, like... In Murders in the Zoo, how hard is it not to say Murders in the Zoo Morgue every time? I know, I know. In Murders in the Zoo, Atwell's character is a respected member of society who it turns out was abusing his wife and murdering people without anyone knowing it the whole time. I mean, certainly that's hitting you where you live because of personal history, but there's also, it's hitting very close because of what's going on in the news right now. You know, this sort of stuff of like, hey, you know that guy you respected? Turns out. Um, Whereas Atwill in The Vampire Bat, you know, was a respected scientist and pillar of the community who it turns out was using telepathy to get his lab assistant to drain people of blood to feed the... Sponge. Sponge that they have in their basement. Like, it's just like, you know, like, the further you get into it, the more you're like, nah. Like, what is, what's, you know, the, what's the likelihood that, like, as a human being, you know, I might be taken advantage of by someone in power for either sexual abuse or violence versus what's the likelihood that a scientist is going to drain my blood to feed the sponge? Like, so I I totally see where you're coming from there. One thing we haven't talked a lot about in this movie is, um, we talked a lot about acting, and we talked a lot about theme, and and stunts, and, like, how cool (laughs) the the, the real animals were and stuff. We haven't talked a lot about other, um, cinematographic elements. Like, we talked about the script being really good, but, like, you know, we didn't talk about lighting or editing or camera movement or that kind of stuff as much. And when we're up here in the real high upper echelons of the list, those kind of filmmaking technique things start to factor into my ranking a bit more. Like, That's fair. you know, the, the moving camera of Dracula or Island of Lost Souls or, you know, Jekyll and Hyde and the, 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 the shadow work and the sets and the, and the costume and all that kind of stuff. You know, again, we rank horror, not film in terms of where our emphasis is, but when we're up in the upper echelons of the list, you know, it's like, well, you know, something to consider. Yeah. James Whale and Todd Browning, uh, might be better at what they do than say like Edward Sutherland do directed comedies except for this, which is kind of wild to think about. Uh, do you know if the comedies that he directed, if they were, um, more slapstick? I don't know a ton about his career uh, in terms of those comedies. I do know that when he was an actor, he worked with Slapstick, but that was because that was in the silent era. Mm. Um, I do know that he did some comedies with W.C. Fields, which would be very, like, dialogue and wit-driven. Because what I'm wondering is, with Slapstick comedy, you always have to see the hit. And we see so much of the horror here. Like, it feels like that same kind of technique. 
Well, and there's, like I said, doing the plot summary, there's moments in this movie that, like, edge into, com- would be would be comedy if they were shot differently. Like, the stuff where Gorman's coming up behind Jack with the <laughs> mamba head, and Jack keeps turning around, and Gorman keeps having to, like, stuff it behind his back or whatever. Or, like I said, the ending, where the anaconda gets him, could be a Looney Tunes gag, you know, where it's Yosemite Sam runs away from the lions and lock, you know, locks the door behind him and is like, ah, I'm safe now. And then, oh, turns out you locked yourself in with the anaconda. Like, that could be a gag, but it's not yeah. in this movie, which yeah. is very interesting. Okay, so... So, so I'm, I'm, I'm working up with you. Uh, you know, I, I'm willing to go above Caligari or Nosferatu... And then I'm starting to have real trouble once I hit Dracula, Frankenstein. Because of the film techniques. Yeah, and, you know, the film techniques and the the iconic nature of those movies as, like, representing the horror genre, too. Caligari and Nosferatu are are as as valuable and iconic as they are. They are... They don't have the power of this movie. You watch those movies and you appreciate. You're like, ah, Orlok's makeup's real good, and... Oh, those sets are neat, but like you don't have the like oh Jesus that you have when you watch this film. So, if you want to talk me up further, I could maybe be talked up further, but I'd have to hear some some pretty good argument. I don't think I have that good argument, but I do have a question for you. Mm-hmm. Given our reactions to this film, mm-hmm. why do you think that this did not achieve the iconic nature as these other films? Probably it is the realism that hurts it. There aren't big visuals that you can reference and parody through culture. There isn't a central monster with a memorable makeup that you can put on the poster or talk about in fan magazines. There's nothing here to reference if I'm coming later in pop culture. The way that I can reference the creaky door in... Dracula, or the uh, the electronic gizmos in Frankenstein, or the bizarre-ass-looking sets in Caligari, right? So I think that's why it hasn't reached an iconic status, because there's no icon here, mm. you know? There's just a good movie, but there's nothing really here to, to latch on to to remember, other than the face of Lionel Atwill, and he appears in so many of these movies that it's not specific to this. Okay. I think I think if there's an iconic, memorable image from this movie, it's the dude with his mouth sewn shut at the start, and that's that's you know that's the prologue. There's there's still an hour of movie after that. Yeah, that's very true. Cool. Yeah, I'm I'm very comfortable putting it below Dracula and above Caligari. All right, that's a very impressive showing for Murders in the Zoo. I was not going into this movie having not seen it. Just kind of knowing a bit about it, I was not expecting a top ten movie out of this. Yeah, and I mean, like, there's something to be said about, like, the way that the themes, different themes will affect us differently, right? Like, (laughs) I say that and it's like, yeah, no shit, Sarah. But (laughs) I mean that in the way of, like, our own perspectives and histories will uh, inform the way that we react to different things. Maybe I wouldn't have, like, fought for Frankenstein in the same way if I hadn't, like, read it and, like, identified with Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft in, like, my university years, you know? Yeah, for sure. We all have personal tastes that we bring to the table, and I mean, ultimately, in terms of ranking these movies, it just so happens that whatever we decide 
in terms of our personal tastes, you know, sifts out to being what the correct answer is uh, <laughs> to decide for all time what the best horror movies are from best to worst. And Murders in the Zoo is apparently seventh best, entering the list at number seven, Murders in the Zoo, 1933, directed by A. Edward Sutherland. If you would like to see this list, you can visit our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you will also find an appeal box where you can submit appeals or concerns or questions or anything of that sort. You can also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com. Also follow us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud and from there to iTunes. Uh, but you can generally get us on whatever podcast app you happen to use. After you've listened to the show, take some time out to comment or rate or review whatever your particular listening software allows you to do. Uh, it certainly helps us out, helps other people find and know about the show. Um, also, tell your friends about us. If you've got any friends who might be into a classic horror movie podcast... Uh, let them know. Uh, word of mouth is the best way for podcasts' audiences to grow. So we are recording this in early December of 2017. By the time you listen to this, uh, it's possible that net neutrality may be dead in the United States. We're going to be keeping a close eye on that from up here in Canada. Mm -hmm. uh, if you start to find that for whatever reason something went evil and you can't access the show anymore, uh, get in touch with us and we'll try to make sure that the show's available as widely as we can make it. We don't really know what this is going to look like uh, if that happens. Um, it'll primarily affect our American listeners, but, you know, there's going to be some, some trickle-down economics, as it were, on that one. Um, I mean, at the very least, we could always, like, get people's emails and email them, like, a file. Gee. There you go. Service straight to your door. Um, <laughs> additionally, as another sort of public service announcement to you guys, one of the films we have sort of coming up in the rotation is La Llorona, uh, the first Mexican horror film. Currently, uh, I do have access to a copy, but it has no English subtitles. Uh, and we're just not going to really watch a movie if we can't understand it. So if you have access to a copy of this film with English subtitles or know of a way for us to get access to it that way, uh, please send us a line so that we can review this film. Screamscenepodcast at gmail.com What are we watching next week, Ben? Oh, uh, Supernatural. All ten seasons? I think there's more than that now. <laughs> All 30 seasons? All 30 seasons, that's right. No, we are watching 1933's Supernatural. It is the follow-up by the Halperin brothers to White Zombie uh, after they got their studio contract from Paramount. Uh, and it stars Carol Lombard. So another Paramount picture. Yes. Wow. Cool. Let's let's see if it breaks the top ten again. Yeah, no kidding. They are <laughs> on a roll. Yeah. All right, Creatures of the Night, we will see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.